Dead men tell no tales. Fifteen men on an dead man's chest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil had done for the rest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. What will we do with the drunken sailor? What will we do with the drunken sailor? What will we do with the drunken sailor? The ship with black sails that's crewed by the damned. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, or the Black Pearl Show, whatever it is. It's the podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder the Pirates of the Caribbean films one blimey minute at a time. It's the first and longest-running Pirates of the Caribbean cast, as much about the movie as it is exploring the historical elements we find in and beyond the films and the expanded universe. There you go. I'm Scott Artis from scottartis.com. And I'm Heather Artis from blackpearlminute.com. Thanks for joining us for Minute 13 of Dead Man's Chest. Being that it's the holiday season, I figured the only thing better than talking about presents... Yeah, the season of giving, if you're me... And the season of taking, if you're uh, Heather, pirate style, you know, just the taker over there. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) At least you admit it. At least you admit it. You got a guess at what I was talking about? What's better than uh, talking about presents? Star Wars? (laughs) That is a good call. That is a very good call. But no. Star Wars just came out, you know. Talking about pirates. Not talking about pirates. I'm talking about snacks. Yes, snacks. In talking with Bloomberg, Jack Davenport, you know, Jack Norrington, yeah, as you'd commonly call him, says he remembers saying to the craft services chef one day, what is your budget for all this? And the guy looked at him, score in the eye and said, essentially unlimited. I was like, <laughs> what does that mean? And then he responded, I don't know, two million or so. Jeez, seriously? <laughs> yeah. I was like, for snacks? And he said, yeah, that sounds frivolous, but it wasn't. He obviously had to keep people fed. And the point is that this was just the snack line that Jack was standing in. Not even the Not food. even the food line. So the cast members went on to like contextualize this with an anecdote and descriptions of the overall massive budget and undertaking of filming to the two sequels in the original Pirates trilogy. Because this was Dead Man's Chest being filmed at the same time as At World's End. Right. Which included things like hundreds of cell phones lost at sea. Because oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huh. All these people are losing their phones overboard. That's pretty funny. Or they're going, you know, I really got an older model here. Oh my God, I dropped my cell phone. What a shame. Guess I need the latest new iPhone. You'd think they wouldn't even be allowed to have them on set. They had to talk to each other on a massive crew. Oh. You have to be available by phone, most Walkie likely. Walkie talkie, hello. Walkie talkie. Oh, we need 5,000 walkie-talkies here, please. (laughs) When it came to the food, the cost of obtaining it just wasn't the only challenge. As Davenport explains, the logistics of getting all these lunches to the crew were just as costly. Seems like Jack Jack Davenport is as interested in food as I am. Yeah, it sounds like it. He's a (laughs) snacker. And then he was quoted as saying, We used to work on the first film, and I remember looking at the call sheet, and it would say, Just catering alone, it was 750 lunches, and we were in the middle of nowhere. They had to fly in everything, all the food. It was like being in an invading army. Wow. Oh, my God. You know, you have like uh, some of the 
music playing that they're storming the the beaches there and then they're just bringing a bunch of lunches to everybody. <laughs> 750 lunches. Now that's a lot. That it is. It can be an ass peeing just to bring lunch to a meeting for 20 to 30 people. You got that right. I know you do that a lot. <laughs> 750? That's an entirely freaking new ball game. Yeah. You can't just call the local deli and you say- You can't? No. Oh. Well, I'm mistaken then. Pizza parlor. Yeah. Hey, I need lunch for 750 people. Oh, I can't do that. I need, Sorry. I need, I need a thousand pizzas quickly. Uh, sorry. Oh, no, well, there you go. So you ready to dive into minute 13? Yes. While we all think about snacks during this holiday, tis the season to be uh, hungry? Yes. In the previous minute, Beckett opens his box and withdraws his letters of Mark. What did you think I was going to say there? I didn't know. Beckett... Well, that's not difficult to imagine. Beckett continues to seduce Will to the dark side of privateering and propositions him for a little project. Yada, yada, yada. They both finish up inside his office and take on the view from the balcony as they literally watch time pass by. Meanwhile, a couple of innovative fishermen try their hand at club hauling. That's clubbing fish and hauling them to shore. <laughs> While Beckett proceeds to inform Will that Jack's kumpa is what he really wants. Kumpa. Minute 13 begins with Beckett finally making the big reveal that what he actually wants is not a kumpa from Jack, but his compass. <laughs> ah, now it all makes sense for me. Beckett informs Will that he needs to bring back the compass or there's no deal. The minute ends with Captain Jack Sparrow sneaking below deck so as not to disturb the sleeping crew. As you were, gents. Jack heads down another flight of stairs and the screen goes black as he disappears from view. There are a couple of callbacks to Curse of the Black Pearl that happened during this minute. That's the kumpa? The compass is one. Kind of the compass. Because we've already talked about it. But I, was, I had specifically some other ideas. The first being the pirate brand. The Mark Beckett left on Jack's wrist. Yes. Did we really need to see the brand here again? Or get the brand reminder? Or was this just like well, a nice cohesive transition from Port, Port Royal back to the Black Pearl? On the Black Pearl, you got somewhat of a look. Not an up close and personal look like you did here. You mean of the brand? Of the brand. What do you mean? On, on his arm? When we you see it better here than you did at Port Royal yeah. in the Curse yeah. of the Black Pearl? Yeah. Because we're getting, I mean, almost full screen yeah. of his brand here. Exactly. But it also allows you to see his tattoo above or portion of yeah. his tattoo above, which is water, which is Jack's love. That's true. Good symbolism thing there. Exactly. So his cuff is covering it, and so now we're just getting uh, some... Freedom, water, symbolism. Then, yeah, that's I could I could see that. That's like right up my uh, territory uh-huh. there with these kinds of theories of why they would showcase only that part of it. His true love. It makes sense, so because that is what Jack is currently fighting for. So the pirate brand in the water, the open sea, the the tattoo. It's this sparrow. It's this free as a bird. And what is being propositioned or what Beckett is looking for is actually to rein that in, to bring him mm-hmm. under the employ as a privateer and at the, if you want to call Beck and call, of Beckett in the East right. India Company. And so, that yeah, that's kind of interesting. That's an interesting... So it's uh, almost a conflict right on his arm there. That it is. You know. Maybe that brand would become a privateer brand if he actually goes Maybe. forward with that. I don't see Jack as an employee, though. No. We also have Jack giving a shout out to all the rum drinkers out there. Yeah. It's like he was talking to you directly. <laughs> He's like, Heather, this one's for you. And he gave a <laughs> wink to the camera. 
Yes. And so that's his question. Why is the rum always gone? Why is the rum always gone? I don't know. I, I really like this scene because it touches on Jack's, not not the, the callback to the line, but the scene because Jack's crazy walking, his land sickness movements, or I can't remember what we called that. There was actually a, a syndrome for this that we yeah. talked about in season one. Now I can't remember what it is. But I do like it because I don't think it was meant this way. But when Jack stands up and then he stumbles a bit as the ship is a rockin', it's almost like his swain and that of the ship cancel each other out and he's able to actually walk normally. Yeah. He's in balance now. <laughs> it's like that's all he needed. I mean, because it's weird to think about because the entire beginning of the Jack scene is about him not being in balance. Yes. The compass is spinning around. This minute is all about symbolism. That it is. I mean, he's trying to plot a course based on the compass. He can't do it. It holds for a second, then changes direction. And it's, this is exactly the idea we discuss about him being in turmoil. Not sure what he really wants. The mind wants one thing, his heart wants another. Exactly. But then he stands up. The ship is swaying. He's swaying because of the rum. And boom. All of a sudden he's like, well, wait a second. I can actually walk now. <laughs> And I don't think they meant it that way because when he stands up and he stumbles, he's actually going, oh, that's why the rum is gone. And then after that, he can walk normal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something there. Is this the closest we've ever seen the compass? I think so. Yeah, I mean, because this is full shot of the compass. Full frontal compass action. Absolutely confused compass. Yes, exactly. I think that's maybe what it is. It's the closest we saw. And I was hoping for some more details on it. But yeah. it was just a standard compass. Yeah. Actually, it was less than a standard compass. It just had... Well, it didn't have any directions on it, really. It had some tick points and things, but... It looked like it had degrees, maybe. Yeah, but it didn't... It's, it's, I was missing the N, okay? I wanted the N. Okay, maybe an S, too. But, you know, it's just like playing cards in the old days. They didn't have any no, numbers they just had or, pictures. Yeah. How do you look that quickly? God dang it. See, they had to coddle us, and then they put the numbers on yep. there. Like, these guys can't do this thing anymore. <laughs> oh, the big, bold arrow that's obviously north. People can't handle it that day. We got to put an N on there. If we can't spell it out north, we might as well put an N, because these people of today's world, they can't get that stuff. Oh, them and their phones and stuff. There's a lot of nice details, though, on the Black Pearl. Speaking of compass, or lack of detail on the compass. How dare you, compass? They've so far really excelled, I think, at the decoration and making the pearl actually feel like it's a well-worn vessel from the 18th century. Yeah. And, of course, when that happens, this really gives me a chance to deliver some history. historical tidbits. You got that right. We need, like, a history thing in there, you know, like some history, pirate history, so or something. Know, something to announce trans- it, yeah. A little announcement. Uh, yeah, we'll something bold. Bold. I'm thinking, yeah. Okay, we'll see what History. we can Let's all go to the... No. Let's all go to the there's, museum. Gotta, Let's all go to the museum. No, that doesn't fit no. very well. There's got to be some old schoolhouse rock thing about history that we could snake. Schoolhouse rock didn't hit much... Oh, no, it was... They did. I don't know. I'm just saying. I don't know offhand, but there's got to be some... Yeah, we'll have to figure that out. Anyways, yes, historical tidbits, and they're obviously pirate-related. But it was also just making me think of the show, how much the show is not necessarily just about the... The show or the movie? Our show. Oh, our show. Misunderstood. Our show is not necessarily just about the movie. See, would that have made sense? The movie is just not about... The, see, you got you to gotta pay attention to context here. I got to finish listening before yeah, I Yeah, that is in. true. 
Well, you just woke up. You're like, oh my God, why is the rumble? I mean, oh, we're on the show. And what I was saying is, is that the show, our show, is not just about the movie, but it's like the movie is a tool to then look into historical tidbits and bring in that other stuff. Exactly. That's what makes it fun. We can talk about the movie and the elements of the movie and all that stuff, the symbolism of it, but we can also talk about the history. And that's what I like, the history of it. The history. Which leads me to the very exciting topic, and I don't think you're going to get this, and everybody out there... Don't shut this off. This is going to get exciting. Pencils. Oh, yeah. Pencils. Because of his pencil thingy out there? Because he had a pencil on his uh, desk there. That he ended up just dropping? Actually, the pencil was, you could see the broken yeah. lead of the pencil. Yeah. But it almost the, looked like coal. It wasn't coal. It's graphite. Okay. But you could see. It's not the, lead? It's not lead. Hey, would you hold your ass for a second? <laughs> Jumping ahead. But you could see the graphite, the lead of the pencil. Was actually just like sandwiched between some pieces of cloth and then tied. Okay. And that's what really got me interested in it because it looked like, which was weird, an antique type of pencil device. <laughs> that if you rub one end, it actually makes a mark. So yeah. So I thought, what the hell? I might as well look up pencils since everybody out there is probably clamoring for uh, pencil information. So prior to 1565, some sources say as early as 1500, a large deposit of graphite was discovered on the approach to Grey Knots from the hamlet of Seawaite in Barrowdale Parish, Cumbria, England. Shout out to all our uh, UK friends. This particular deposit of graphite was extremely pure and solid, and it could easily be sawn into sticks. Huh. It remains the only large-scale deposit of graphite ever found in this solid form. Chemistry was in its infancy at this time, and the substance was thought to be a form of lead. Consequently, it was called plumbago, Latin for lead ore. Because the pencil core is still referred to as lead, or a lead, many people have the misconception that graphite in the pencil is lead, and the black core of pencils is still referred to as lead, which we all know, yeah. lead of a pencil, even though it never contained the element lead. Well, that's interesting. The value of graphite would soon be realized to be enormous, mainly because it could be used to line the molds for... Here's our pirate reference, cannonballs. Oh, really? So when they were making cannonballs and pouring the, you know, like the iron and stuff and forming it, they yeah. used the graphite pencil lead to uh, to coat that. Because it more power, you could powder it almost. Or it's a... So yeah, and then it would yeah. be able to come out easy. Huh. So the mines were taken over by the crown and were guarded. That's how valuable this graphite became. Wow. When sufficient stores of graphite had been accumulated... The mines were then flooded to prevent theft until more was required. Wow. So the crown that had taken them over and was guarding it decided, hey, this is a pain in the ass guarding it from all these people coming in here. Let's just fill it with water. People won't be able to go in there. And then they would drain it out when they needed more. Huh. Interesting. The usefulness of graphite for pencils was discovered as well, but graphite for pencils had to be smuggled. The news of the usefulness of these early pencils spread far and wide, attracting the attention of artists all over the known world. Because graphite is soft, it requires some form of encasement. Hence the... Hence the... Cloth. Cloth and the, the string. So graphite sticks were initially wrapped with string or sheepskin for stability. Huh. England would enjoy a monopoly on the production of pencils until a method for reconstituting the graphite powder was found in 1662 in Italy. However, the distinctively square English pencils continued to be made with sticks cut from natural graphite into the 1860s. The town of Keswick, near the original findings of this block graphite we are talking about, still manufactures pencils, the factory also being the location of the very exciting Cumberland 
pencil museum. Really? So that's what I'm saying. There's obviously an audience out there for pencils. And that's why we're talking about it. Wow. Pencil museum. I think uh, Pirates of the Caribbean needs to uh, have a field trip with its listeners (laughs) to the pencil museum. The moral of this tale, kids claiming to get lead poisoning from pencils is entirely not true. (laughs) Ever. Hard to believe something kids believe in or claim is not true. It's like they're training to be adults. Is there such thing as graphite poisoning? Just kidding. I don't know. Why did... Yeah. I'm just teasing. How long... Is that still going on? I even asked my sister this recently, and this was completely not even related to this. I said, because she's a teacher of young ones, do the kids still claim lead poisoning? And then she basically told me she doesn't know because she's teaching even younger kids now, and they can... uh they can barely get around. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't got to the cynical point of stabbing each other with pencils yet and then claiming getting lead poisoning. They're barely using crayons. <laughs> yeah, so they're the crayon generation. But yeah, they haven't gotten to that point of you know really hurting each other with pencils or stabbing yourself with a pencil and then claiming you got lead poisoning in an attempt to go home. Or how dare you stab me or touch me with that pencil because now I'm going to get lead poisoning. And I'm not going to get all like hourglass here because there's an hourglass sitting on his table as yes. well. Because it really doesn't have anything to do with pencils for crying out loud. It was a really tiny hourglass. Oh, that's what she said. Well, that it was wasn't. A sad you one. would think it would be more like an hour type hourglass, but it's tiny. But oh, we we went through last season. We went through. They had thirty minute hourglasses, right? Wouldn't they be 30-minute glasses? I mean, 30-minute. Well, that's what... <laughs> half an <whatever>. hour glasses? <laughs> so that they knew they would have to... Somebody would have to flip it every half hour? That's right. Yes, I remembered something. But the... In my drunken the state. The hourglass or Heather's half-hour glass or 30-minute glass, whatever she wants to call it, is worth mentioning because there is a direct tie-in with sailing, especially in the 18th century is where we're at right now. Not until the mid to late 1700s did John Harrison and his son James come up with the marine chronometer that significantly improved on the stability of the hourglass at sea. Taking elements from the design logic behind the hourglass, they made a marine chronometer in 1761 that was able to accurately, and this is supposedly, measure the journey from England to Jamaica within five seconds. Really? That's pretty accurate. Yeah. I don't even know if I could do that. You probably couldn't. How dare you? (laughs) If I really wanted to, I could. Uh Uh-huh. So that's all I'm going to bring on that stuff. Okay. Pencils and hourglasses. Because it's incredible. This show is like a learning experience with uh, the occasional euphemism thrown in. I mean, talk about providing the most entertaining mnemonic devices that people can use in their daily lives. It's like historical facts with euphemisms. Then people are going to be out in the real world going, oh, I remember that. And what they're actually remembering is the euphemism that we threw out. It sounds like an entertaining show. Where can I find it? Uh, it's, it's not found anywhere. <laughs> People have, people have booted this show like it's the plague. Oh, my God. Poor Black Pearl show. Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. Tell your friends. Tell your sad friends. Just give it a listen. Help those poor people out. Did you notice when Jack goes downstairs, you see Cotton and Marty and the parrot all sitting there? And Marty's actually holding Cotton's leg. Yeah. And the parrot's sitting on, Mar- on Cotton's arm. And Cotton doesn't look like he's sleeping. He looks like his eyes open. I think he sleeps with his eyes open. You think? I think that's what it is. He's a pirate, so he's got to be he's constantly got, Oh, one eye's always open. He doesn't have a tongue, so he's now... His his eyesight, his sleeping eyesight is now taken over for losing the sense of taste. So <laughs> his eyesight has grown stronger because he doesn't have that sense of taste now. And then, <laughs> hanging from Marty's hammock, 
it looks like there's a teddy bear hanging from his hammock. Yeah, it does by look like leg. a teddy bear. Isn't that interesting? It's about to fall off the hammock, is what this it teddy is. Bear He's looks like, like hanging by his leg. That doesn't seem like the quintessential pirate item, though. It's like no. you're you're coming on board. Flintlock, check. Cutlass, check. Teddy, teddy bear, bear? Uh, check. <laughs> All the pirates have their teddy bears with them. The teddy bear is basically just a silhouette here, so it's not yeah. like we're getting any detail. No. And I thought this would be the perfect time to actually talk about teddy bears, but I decided I'm going to pass on it for the most part. Because, spoiler, we see Gibbs in At World's End holding a teddy bear, and you really get a good shot of it. So I figured I would really jump into teddy bear action then. So you're going to make everybody wait till next season? Yeah. Okay, well, here, here's the spoiler for the teddy bear then. It was developed apparently simultaneously by toy makers Morris Mitchcom in the U.S. and Richard Steiff in Germany. You know, Steiff. Bears and things. Okay. Famous, yeah. very expensive yeah. bears. And this was in the early 20th century and named after President Theodore Teddy Roosevelt. So, oh, Marty. I don't think we're near think, the 20th century here. I think here. Marty was the inventor of the uh, Marty bear, is we're going to have to call it. He made it himself. He did. It's a bear plush. I don't know what they called him back then. Then if it wasn't Teddy Roosevelt, it had to be uh, the Marty bear. Cotton's bear. <laughs> Cotton's bear is a whole different ball game. <laughs> you got a bear going on you have your own bear that's a whole different thing and speaking of gibbs is he trying to steady himself because he had too much rum or what you know how you put your foot on the floor if you drink too much because he's all sleep? sprawled out yeah because he's he's halfway out of his hot hammock. they're all like sprawled out though yeah if but he's he has an arm and a leg out if you can imagine sleeping on a ship in a hammock that's constantly moving. I mean, it's better than being in a bed, probably, because at oh, least yeah. the hammock rocks back and forth with the ship, as opposed to you rocking out of the bed. Yeah. So at least there's some movement. You know that that's what's going on. I mean, look at Jack. It was swaying the boat was... Now, I said boat because of you. How dare you? Ship that he uh, had to catch his balance, so these hammocks would be swaying when there's waves and things like that. Yeah. If you were captain or you ranked higher amongst the crew, you might be spoiled with the private sleeping quarters, like we see with Jack. Otherwise, you'd be sleeping in an open yet small space with dozens of other crew members. Sometimes they actually had hammocks. Other times they were on the floor. The preferred bed in a pirate ship was a hammock as it would rock and sway with the ship's motions, providing for an easier night's sleep. Well, yeah, then you wouldn't feel it moving. That's right. And that's what I came up with. But it actually said they only got like maybe four hours sleep or so. So it wasn't even that they were getting a lot of sleep. Oh, okay. Because they had to keep going up. I don't know. Somebody always had to keep watching stuff. Yeah, there was all kinds of things going on. So while I was doing some research on ships and all of the things, sleeping quarters and all that kind of stuff, I found some interesting tales on the subject. It's Well, it's it's kind of more like the subject of retrofitting a ship to suit the needs of pirates in their pirate quarters. One of the most impressive aspects of the early 18th century pirates is these enormous voyages which they made in search of their treasure, their plunder. They cruise North American coast down to Newfoundland to actually the Caribbean. They were all over the place. Wow. I said Caribbean when I should have said Caribbean. You should Damn have. it. The armament of the selected vessel was less important than speed and seaworthiness because guns could always be added later. Since this fitting was carried out in a secluded location out of reach of the authorities, there are really no official records or accounts of some of this actually happening. But a close reading of Johnson's general history of pirates suggests that it was normal practice for pirates to take over a ship and set the carpenter and gunners to work pretty, um, like, right away, immediately. Oh, really? 
Captain Edward England captured a ship called the Pearl and set off to the Azores to plunder ships. Then there's another one when Edward Lothar and his fellow mutineers seized the Gambia Castle in 1721. Well, here's a direct quote. I'll just let the actually say that. They knocked down the cabins, made the ship flush fore and aft, prepared black colors, and newly named her the Delivery, and sailed off to seek fortune upon the seas. Wow. So they completely just gutted it. And I mention this because of the cleaning out of the decks and making it easier for attacks, getting around and alleviating like all this weight to be faster. Which means pirates were sleeping wherever they could find a spot or hang their freaking hammocks. Yeah. And the best account of alterations to a ship I could uncover was Johnson's discussion in his book on Bartholomew Roberts. When Roberts and his men captured the Onslow in 1721, they decided to keep her for their own use. And she was described as a handsome frigate-built ship owned and operated by the Royal Africa Company. They set about making such alterations as might fit her for sea, pulling down her bulkheads and making her flush so that she became, in all respect, as complete a ship for their purpose as any they ever found. They continued to the... They continued to her the name of Royal Fortune and mounted her with 40 guns. As with Lowther's ship, the pirates removed the bulkheads or internal walls below decks, which were installed to hold cargo. This created a clear space for working the guns. In making her flush, suggests the pirates also removed the forecastle and lowered the quarter deck to provide an unobstructed fighting platform. The result was described as a formidable warship which would have been a match for the largest East Indiaman and would have made mincemeat of the average merchantman plying her trade across the Atlantic. That's amazing. It's like they rebuild the sucker. Exactly. They completely just gut it so they can have... Well, they need to be able to run around unimpeded. Yeah. And they need to make sure that things are lowered. They don't want a bunch of steps. They want to be able to duck below the rails. They were also talking about how that they would cut additional gun ports in the ship. Add more guns if necessary. You know, crew were sleeping wherever they could. They were adding hammocks. There was all kinds of stuff that was actually going on to make it better to attack and plunder treasure. And so whether the deck was cleared or not, the whole this whole kind of idea is that life at sea was still like incredibly rough for pirates. Below deck, it was really this like dark, dank, damp, and dirty area. Right. So we kind of get that feel and this scene. Right. Even more so in the next minute. Yeah. Exactly. And the men lived in cramped conditions, sleeping amongst rats and eating a poor diet is what it was described. And that's obviously what we see here. I mean, this motley crew is lounging about, arms hanging over, and even sleeping with their stuffed animals. <laughs> but what's interesting is that they were talking how, you know, like merchant ships and navy naval ships and things like that were actually the people were more in cramped quarters because... Pirate ships were usually less occupied with with uh, crewmen than right. So there was more space than say you know a naval ship or something that had just a ton of crew on board. Right. The pirate ships were were usually less crew, so they had some more space. But it was still not a uh, not a vacation. It wasn't your average cruise line thing going on. There. No, no. Wow. You know this is a new Black Pearl from between. You mean the behind the scenes stuff? Yeah. Yeah. This is a, you know, the Curse of the Black Pearl was a different ship than this Black Pearl. Yeah, that one was built on a barge. Yeah, and this is built actually using a, rebuilding a boat, basically. Set director, her name is Cheryl Hersick, and she kind of outfitted the ship. The ship, I said, did you hear that? Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) She selected appropriate accoutrements, such as crisscrossing hammocks on the hold deck, period correct baskets, 
ropes and gently swinging lanterns. We see the lanterns in this minute and all the hammocks and stuff like that. So I just kind of thought I wanted to throw Cheryl out here. Throw her out Throw or her give out. her a shout out give her a for shout all out. the awesome uh, work that she yeah, did on the scene. she did a really good job. This is kind of shows you, you know, as close as they on. could get to. Yeah, and I think I was going to mention like. some of this in the next minute, but since you brought it up, the art direction, which includes the set and stuff like that, actually received an Academy Award nomination at the 79th Annual Oscars. Oh, really? Yeah, so it was in recognition of a lot of this work that goes on. And we see in the next minute a lot of the great detail that continues on with the decoration and the artwork that happened to make this Black Pearl a reality. Yeah. Or make it feel really lived in. Yeah. Not just a brand new looking ship, but something that has seen the test of time out there. And that's what's uh, made it kind of a really interesting look when we're getting to below the scenes on this particular ship. Yep. And to know that they actually created a ship for this, A, it shows how successful it was and how their bet was going to go forward that they're going to need... They were going to make a black pearl that was actually a ship and not just a facade built around a barge. They actually said, hey, this is what we need. It's a seaworthy vessel now. They're going to be able to enhance the shots. They're going to be able to get other additional cinematography in moments, in crew moments, because they don't need to hide necessarily as much and do movie magic and CGI and stuff like that to, to fill in the gaps that were on the barge. Right. So that's what's cool. So that's all I got. That's all I have. Well, there we go then. Oh, I did actually want to make one. Oh, so it's not all you got. Actually, I just remembered because there's a really neat transition that ends with the minute. And that's when Jack is going below deck again or yeah. going down further into the berth. The camera follows his movement like we're getting this sneak peek in, in a spliced ship. So it's like it's been spliced in half. Yeah. And as Jack goes down the stairs, then the camera starts to follow him, but it's obscured by the wood in the deck, which is pretty cool because yeah. then it all goes black. And I just thought, wow, what a perfect way to end a minute when yeah. it all goes black. <laughs> so that's what I thought. Okay, there. Now I'm done. Okay. So are we ready to get out of here? We're ready. We'll be back tomorrow with minute 14 of Dead Man's Chest and probably a little history. So until then, Scallywags, let's keep the horn swoggling to a minimum. You've been listening to The Black Pearl Show, and we appreciate it, scallywags. Heather, I know you're still on pirate time and kicking back with the booze, but you may have noticed... Actually, who am I kidding? The only thing you've noticed lately is the inside of the Faithful Bride Tavern. Anyways, our procrastination has paid off yet again and Season 2 is here and we are willfully unprepared. Maybe we can distract people with a Jack Sparrow wave of the hands and send people across that thing called the internet. Check us out on Facebook.com slash Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, Twitter.com slash Black Pearl Men, Instagram.com slash Black Pearl Show, SoundCloud.com slash Pirates of the Caribbean, that's for best of clips, and by all means give us a plug and review on iTunes. We'd appreciate it, mateys. Oh, and let's not forget the Facebook Cursed Crew listeners group for post-episode discussions. That's actually a lot to remember, especially if you're in a foggy haze like Heather. Just go to blackpearlshow.com and everything is there at the click of a button. Perhaps I should have just said that from the beginning. This is a Shout Reach Media Production. 
Pirates don't need no stinking disclaimers, but just for fun. I think all you dirty, filthy bilge rats know that Disney and Bruckheimer Films have no affiliation with us at all, and we have none with those blooming cockroaches. We talk about Pirates of the Caribbean, which is their property, and all that other fun stuff. But I think it's obvious what's ours and what's theirs. There's no need to blur the lines or stir up a bloody rum-filled sweat. As for the music... That's with permission or licensed under Creative Commons. So let's give a shout out to Ross Bugden, Six Nail Coffin, and Tommy Wynn. The rest? Well, that's just me. Oh, and maybe Heather.